Hey there, I'm Ange McCormack, and this is 7am's Best Of series, where we look back at our favourite episodes from 2023. Today's episode is a particularly great one. It's an interview with Elizabeth Reed, Australia's first women's advisor. Before we get to the episode, 7am editor Scott Mitchell is here to talk about it a bit more. Scott, this episode happened before my time at 7am, so I'm curious to know how it actually all came about. Yeah, well, so we had seen that it was coming up to the 50th anniversary of Elizabeth Reed being appointed to be Australia's first advisor on women's affairs. And Shane Anderson, a producer here, actually had interviewed Elizabeth before for another project. Mm -hmm. And so she had her contact details, knew she was around, knew she was a great talker, had a great story to tell. There was so much more significance to it through knowing what we know now about politics from today's kind of context. And Mm. those two and a half years in the Whitlam government that she served in were just so tumultuous and, and fascinating. She was just so generous, such a fantastic interviewee, and and just had incredible clarity about the way she thought and spoke and, and her values during that time. It, it was a great interview. But Ange, also, you know, you mentioned, you know, you're sort of coming to this fresh mm. and listening to it for the first time. Um, what did you think of it? Yeah, I think it's so cool to hear someone from a totally different era as a woman speak about their experiences of that time from the 70s. And it was really fascinating to see how far we we actually have come. You can, as a woman, especially working in the media, you can kind of think that we haven't come very far. But when you listen to some of those moments in this episode about how Elizabeth was treated by the media, even though women are still treated poorly by the media in, in many respects, I think you can really get a sense of how far we have come. So that's really empowering. But at the same time, I think it does also highlight things that haven't changed. And we are still in this day and age having a lot of tough conversations about how women are treated in politics, in the media, some of those really difficult conversations that we had about the culture in Parliament House only happened a couple of years ago, not decades ago, a couple of years ago in post sort of Brittany Higgins allegations. So I think it's on one hand empowering to see the change that has happened since Elizabeth's time. You'll hear how much impact she had on Australia. And I think that's a really impressive story to know that change can happen in a generation, but also at an individual level. Yeah. And there's there's a piece of tape in this episode that we were lucky enough to find that speaks to the exact thing you're talking about. And, and when you hear it, it's the first time Elizabeth faced the media after she was appointed. And you can kind of hear the roots of that in our media culture and that mm. scrutiny of women immediately when you listen to it. And so that was really great to be able to take our audience there in this episode. Absolutely. Here's Ruby Jones speaking to Elizabeth Reid. I didn't have any any well-built protective mechanisms But the best thing was that I was so busy that I really didn't have time to let them drag me under. I always had more work than I could possibly do, or somewhere to go, or a meeting to attend, or a speech to give, or a speech to write, or letters to answer. And I think that's what saved me, because as I look back on it now, I think, how on earth did I get through that? 
It was only two and a half years I was in that job. I'm now over 80, so there are plenty more years in my life, but those two and a half years have somehow stood out in Australia as being my life, I guess. So, Elizabeth, it was 50 years ago now that you took on the role of advisor on women's affairs to the Whitlam government. I thought that we could begin by going back to that time. What was it like to be a feminist activist in Australia in the early 70s? And and do you think that Australia was open to the kind of radical change that you were fighting for? Well, look, in the 60s, we fought single issues. So we had homosexual law reform, abortion law reform, family planning, etc. And these were the sorts of things that we marched about, wrote submissions about, wrote papers about and so on. And it wasn't until the women's liberation movement started having, here in the ACT, the first meeting was in November 1970, and it wasn't until the women's liberation movement came along that we saw all of the issues that concerned us, that we felt about being presented as an entity, as a whole. Everyone's talking about women's liberation. The women are getting together to talk about women's oh, liberation. I wish that was true. I think it is true. The thing that we said we were against was sexism. We needed to face up to all the manifestations of sexism. Frustrated housewives, do you think they lead an exciting existence or a dull one? Well, 50-50, I think. It depends on their makeup, don't you think? And I think that was a radical change for us. So it was a time of street art. The Women's March a couple of Saturdays ago, the organisers only expected 1,000 to turn up at the most, and there were nearly 3,000. So we had demonstrations and placard-making and shaking and so on. Men and women of Australia, the decision we will make for our country on the 2nd of December is a choice between the past and the future. Okay, and so in 1972, Whitlam comes into power with a a progressive agenda, but without any women in the caucus. And so in response to the women's liberation movement, he decides to create this new role of women's advisor. So... What were you doing when that job came up? How did you find out about it? And and ultimately, how did you land the role? Right. I had just come back to Australia from Oxford. So I did my first degree in Canberra and then was lucky enough to get a scholarship to Oxford. And I came back in 1970 to work as a research assistant at the ANU in the philosophy department. And the ad went in the paper and... I think the actual wordings were that the person would be doing research into the needs of women and was there to assist the Prime Minister on policy issues. But it was left a little vague. And, of course, the Sydney Women's Liberation Movement got up in arms about the position. They took the street yelling and shouting and waving placards saying, no one woman is going to represent us. But, in fact, well over 400 people put in applications for that job. I just decided I would apply for it. 
Other women decide they wouldn't, but I decided I would because I just felt this was a unique opportunity to go into the halls of power and work out what we wanted to do. Do you remember the conversations that you had around that time? What what were other people, these other activists who you knew, what were they saying about why they weren't interested in, in trying to, as you put it, get into the halls of power? Well, yes. I mean, there was a huge debate that was going on in the women's movement over reform versus revolution. And so that if you had a strong line on that, a strong line pro-revolution, that what we needed was a true revolution, sort of of the kind that the men advocated in the anti-war movement or in other movements. But reform, we'd never had a chance to act in a reformist milieu before. And so there was a huge amount of to and froing, both over whether you could achieve anything going into the halls of power or whether you should stay outside and scream from the outside, make demands from the outside. And it was felt very much by the women's liberation movement that power corrupts. And if you went into the halls of power, you would be automatically compromised. I mean, I have to say that for my whole time working for Whitlam, I used to get up in the morning and look at myself in the mirror and think, shit, am I being corrupted yet? (laughs) (laughs) Did you come to an answer on that question? Well, no, I didn't. No, I decided it was very difficult to know yourself whether you were corrupted. You could feel that you were pure and uncorrupted and continuing around, but unless you had a lot of feedback... It was quite difficult to tell whether you're compromised or not by, um, by power itself. I just wonder, when you took it on at the very sort of beginning of that road, did you have any idea of the challenges ahead and how hard it might be and, and the sort of the pushback you might get from the press, from colleagues? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> now, once I got the job... I decided the first thing we needed to do was to go out and ask women what they thought women really needed and what do women want. And so I spent over a year travelling around Australia. I met with every group of women that would have me. My job was just to listen to what they were saying. So I met with women in jails, migrant women, Aboriginal women, Women farmers, women in rural areas, women in urban areas, migrant women's resource centres, you name it. And it was a wonderful time. It was very tiring. But already the press had put their stamp on the job. Once I got the job, the Prime Minister's boys in the press room set up a press interview for me in my home. They started their cameras rolling and the first question they asked was, so, would you call yourself a feminist? So obviously I said, well, you tell me what you mean by it and I'll answer it. If you could tell me what that, what you meant by it. Well, I mean, you disagree with marriage and as I understand it, you only just tolerate children. Oh, on the contrary, I don't disagree with marriage and I love children. Marriage they went on from there to ask me about my views on pot, abortion, marijuana, homosexuality, etc., etc., etc. And then the next day was to be my first day in the Prime Minister's office. And I woke up that morning and I saw the papers and it was unbelievable. 
Prime Minister Supergirl says legalise pot, legalise abortion, legalise prostitution, legalise homosexuality. And that was smeared across virtually every paper in Australia. And it just didn't get any better. It only got worse. Do you, what have you actually achieved in the time uh, since your appointment, or has the government relegated you to the position of token lady without any real power or influence? Almost every paper in Australia, when they were reporting on something that I'd done, they would say, Elizabeth Reed, 33 years old, wearing no bra, and whose daughter doesn't live with her, sat in Canberra today. I was asked no questions about, you know, what do you think is really the problem facing women in Australia? What do, you, what do you intend to do in your job? Ultimately, Australian women will pass judgment on Elizabeth Reed's effectiveness. But Australian men will be responsible for her success or failure. I mean, they thought that if they put me down first and then report what I said in a scandalous way as possible, the women of Australia might well turn against me. And they didn't. Mm. Yeah, I mean, despite your treatment in the media, you, you did achieve a lot in your time as women's advisor. Um, if I can list some of those achievements, you, you organised funding for childcare, things like women's refuges. You you helped set up funding for International Women's Year celebrations, as well as, I think, just speaking to, to so many women who were contacting you and, and pouring out their stories to you. So, so what are you most proud of from your time in government? What am I proud of? Well, the two that stand out was firstly the supporting mother's benefit. This was an amazing, slight piece of legislation that gave women a small amount of money to help bring up their child without being forced either to marry against their wishes or to give their child up for adoption. They got the option for the first time to keep their child and raise it themselves. And that just changed dramatically women's lives. And to this day, I mean, 50 years later, I can get stopped in the street by somebody who says, I am who I am now because of you, because of that supporting mother's benefit. And the other thing that really changed women's lives was the free tertiary education. Women came out of the woodwork. You've never seen a more diverse group of women because they represented all women, young women, but hundreds of older women, migrant women, they all took advantage of that free education and life changed. Life changed not only for them, but for their descendants, their children and their grandchildren and so on. All led different lives because these women started being able to be educated. And so the minute it became free, the women just swamped. It was lovely. We'll be back in a moment. As a a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. 
Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. We women will no longer be manipulated for political ends, either in the international or in the national forum. But this deprives us of our dignity. We women will no longer tolerate paternalism, benign or otherwise, for it deprives us of our selfhood. And this is our conference. Thank you. So, Elizabeth, 1975 was significant in that it was the first ever UN-declared International Women's Year, and you gave this speech we just heard to a world conference in Mexico City, but just a few months after that, you resigned from your role. Why was that? Oh, well, 1975, the Labor government was in turmoil, but for International Women's Year, Each country was encouraged to set up a program of action and one of the key items in our program was the Women in Politics Conference, which was held here in Canberra in September 1975. And over 700 women came from all around Australia to attend. They were women from every background, every part of politics. And, of course, there was tension and friction, particularly at first. And it started when... We had a reception in King's Hall in the old Parliament House and firstly the invitation said, when they specified what outfits we should wear, they said, suit. So many women turned up in men's suits. And then outside of the hall, a group of Aboriginal women burst into the hall carrying placards and yelling that they'd been neglected. And then Labour women who were opposed to Whitlam Stand on East Timor took placards and unfurled them behind Whitlam when he was standing giving his speech. Now, we got through the tensions, we dealt with them, we put on extra sessions, we did everything we could to address people's concerns. And the conference settled down, but the damage had been done. So the papers were full of photographs of statues in King's Hall with bras draped over them, or women in men's suits, or writing on the toilets, lesbians are lovely. And so at the end of the conference, three Labour men uh, went into Whitlam's office and said, you've got to get rid of her. She is going to cause you to lose votes at the next election, and we can't afford that. And Whitlam eventually gave in and so it was decided that they would move me over to the bureaucracy. But it was a silencing trick. And I didn't go into the job in order to become a public servant. I just turned around on my heels, left his office and resigned. Went out with a mate to dinner and over my dinner we wrote out my resignation. And so, so that's what I did. And you were quoted at the time as saying that that when you quit, you needed to reassess who you were as a person. Who were you when you finished the job as, as opposed to, to when you started? What effect did it have? Wow, what a good question. Immediately, I think I was literally exhausted. My life was honed down to just plain working. 
And I hadn't had a night off or a night out for in all that time, I think. I probably didn't exist much. I was very attenuated, I think. And it was October, so it was just uh, about a month before the dismissal. And I just wanted to get away, and I didn't want to have to deal with the Australian press anymore. So I sort of saw myself more as a refugee from the Australian press, and I fled to the wilds of Canada. And I stayed in a log cabin up there with the grizzly bears migrating south outside by myself for a while. And then I went on. I'd been invited to give a, a lecture at the UN. So I went over to the UN, gave a lecture and ended up in Iran. Yeah, so after you, you left Australian politics, you moved into, into international development work. Um, you've worked with the UN um, in HIV advocacy as well, I believe. And and underlying your work, I think there is this sense of of a fight against imbalances of power, whether that is for, for women in Australia or around the world. When you look at what's changed in Australia since your time as, as women's advisor, I mean, many of the things that were being fought for then have now become the norm. I'm thinking about equal pay for women, for example. I mean, <laughs> there's not perfect equality, but things things are better than they were then. And yet we've seen women on the steps of parliament with stories of, of harassment, assault, a culture of silence um, at parliament house. So when you look at the situation, particularly for women in politics in Australia today, what do you think and, and how do you compare it to, to the atmosphere and the things that surrounded you in the 70s? Well, I think that the, the most dramatic change is that there's no collective movement, there's no social movement. Now, what I mean by that was, I mean, we had the Women's Liberation Movement and we had the Women's Electoral Lobby and the other groups, but uh, nowadays we saw we had the March for Justice, which was an event, and almost the only mass event that's occurred in recent years. Now, I think that we made a revolutionary change in women's lives, but there's still an awful lot to do, and there's an awful lot to do in Australia. And I think you see that in things like the Brittany Higgins case, which has shown up some of the structural problems with our legal system. If you look at our defamation laws, you see that here you have structural problems too. If you look at our consent laws, here you have structural problems. So we actually have a legal system that is itself rife with the entitlement of masculinity. It is born of toxic masculinity. Now, these institutions, which are pretty very central to democracy, parliament and the legal system, they weren't very functional in our days either. We have to stop now and restructure the whole culture of our institutions and I think that's what we have to do. Mm. And right at the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about this question of reform versus revolution. So whether it's more effective to agitate for change from the outside as, as an activist or like you did to, to join in and, and try and make a difference from inside the institutions of power. And so at this point in your life, after all of your experience, where do you now sit on that question? What is more effective? Well, I would want to begin by arguing that it isn't a question of reform versus revolution. 
What we showed back then was that where you have a progressive government and a women's social movement, you can instill a revolutionary consciousness and you can get the government itself, not just to introduce changes that we would tend to call reforms, but you can get a government that's prepared to to change the very attitudes and nature. But we've got a long way to go in affecting the change in our institutions, our workplaces, in our legal system and so on. Did you ever consider going back into politics after that two and a half years? No. <laughs> that two and a half years taught me that politics is not a place conducive to being human. The hours are so long, you are separated so long from your family and friends, you can't function as a true, soft human. You have to become a machine. And I just didn't want to live like that. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Ruby, very much. I've enjoyed it too. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday paper. No hot takes.